Today, we wrap up our latest comic book feud series. Neil Gaiman versus Todd McFarlane, part three. It's the trial. It's the verdict. It's the bankruptcy. It's the fallout. We have all of it as this entire thing collapses around the house of Todd McFarlane. We go we go into uh, great detail into exactly how each collapse occurs, why Angela is no longer in the Spawn universe and now resides with the Guardians of the Galaxy at Marvel, why Marvel is now the primary publisher and your supplier for all things Miracle Man. It is a whopper of a tale. We wrap it up with style in an all-new edition of Observations. Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of Observations. I am your host, Rob Liefeld. Here at Observations, the first thing you need to know is that we love comic books. We love superheroes. We love superhero comic books. This show exists to just pour love, affection, and attention to the actual comic books that have launched the blockbuster films, the long-running streaming series, the video games, the toys, all the accessories, all of the licensing that, that exists all over the shelves at your big box store, your Walmart, your Target, uh, even now your, your Best Buy. Th- this show loves comics. I've loved comics my entire life fr- from when I was kind of like I can have cognitive thought memories of cognitive thought and of processing i was grabbing comic books i have i have told the story many times of how uh my my barber allowed me the the guy who i went to a barber shop my dad took me to a barber shop every few saturdays and he had marvel superhero comics he had a copy of fantastic four 147 that absolutely changed my life forever it is it it, it was the the, the catalyst of, of jumping me from the, the more family-friendly, Casper the Friendly Ghost, Archie, uh, Richie Rich comics, which I which I really enjoyed and loved those, but it, it, it jumped me into the world of Marvel and DC Comics. And then when I was able to leave the house and wander down a few blocks in my youth, seven years old, in, in 1974, that's when I started pulling these comic books off the rack. And by 1975, I had an addiction. And it was easy to have an addiction back there because 20 cents... 20 cents a copy, five a buck bought you five comics. That's a lot of escapism. I've talked about comics, you know, help me cope through, through terrible times. Five, six brain surgeries for my dad. Uh, it gave me escape. It gave me inspiration. Like so many of you, we all have the same story. We look to comics to take us away, take us away to another magical, amazing place. And this show exists to celebrate that. And sometimes we share comic book history. We share uh, the, the, the foundations with which the comic industry was built, was born. The, the, the early days of, of Marvel Comics, the, the very revolutionary 1960s and 1970s. We've discussed that. We've discussed the incredible imaginations of, of creators such as Jack Kirby as, as Steve Ditko. We've discussed who I believe are, are, are some of the most immediate inspirations on my own work and my peer group, the John Burns, the Frank Millers, uh, wh- whose contributions cannot be underscored in how they really pushed comics to the next level. The, if, if I didn't say Howard Chaikin already, 
the, the independent-minded people, the Wendy Pennies, the ElfQuests. Uh, comics had so many different angles that, that, that were pushing everybody else. If the independent movement wasn't happening, if something like an ElfQuest wasn't happening, then, then royalties don't happen. And Marvel doesn't institute their royalty policy, and then that gives more money to creators, and then that that maybe attracts more really talented people. Somebody like a Paul Smith we've talked about here. He did one solid, amazing year on X-Men, but he came from the world of animation. He worked in Los Angeles. He made animated films, Fire and Ice, Lord of the Rings. He worked with, with, with one of the most acclaimed animated directors, Ralph Bakshi, okay? But uh, but he, he left Bakshi to to do X-Men because the money was so good. We could we could then, as an industry, pull away a great animator. And he gave us a very unique and and, and celebrated run on the X-Men, which through my youth was one of the was was seen as the second best run ever after the 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 incredible John Byrne run. But Paul Smith got his giant royalty package and and he he uh dabbled in a few a few comics and then he told everybody i would see him at conventions he said i'm taking all this money and i'm and, and, and i'm gonna ride my bike my motorbike my hog around the country and he did mad respect to him he had a plan comics was pushed because of the 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 work of independent creators that i that i grew up with and then of, of, of course it was those creators that continued to push their visions and and, and transform batman frank miller We've talked about it often here on the show. He transformed Batman to the point where I did an entire bat. Ca- <laughs> I should call the Batcast. I did an entire podcast on on the, the 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 ways that he changed Batman forever that 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 have stuck since 1986, and that is a long time ago. So we discuss modern comics. We discuss the the what's called the Bronze Era of comics, really the 70s, mid 80s era of comics the, the the 90s get a lot of run here we talk about stuff that's going on in the modern age the modern age is very uh it, it, to me it's still finding its footing but along the way we've shared interviews we've shared memos facts sales figures that that i've d- dug up or i've i've accidentally stumbled upon but they're stamped they're dated they're from an official form from a distribution copy and they have sales figures from you know 1978 1972 1983 and and sharing those gives you a better glimpse a picture of what was going on at the time what titles were the most popular the raw observations library is full of information factual information that you may not have have heard of when something's an opinion we'll tell you it's an opinion when something's a fact we'll call it a fact today is the third part it is the third chapter how did i ever believe that i could do this in two parts i really believed i could do this entire story of neil gaiman versus todd mcfron i thought i could fit it into two comfy uh, episodes but 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 by before i even took the mic to continue chapter two i realized i can't I can't contain this all in one. So today is our wrap-up because part of the history of comics is is when comic creators feud and, 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 and the stuff that happens. And this has some severe consequences. This, this has some severe consequences, but I'm going to tell you here, at the very top, I, I am shocked at how many people have told me they did not know this existed. The entire industry was literally clinging to the results of all of these lawsuits. Todd was in a lawsuit with a hockey player that he lost. 
uh, that got an appeal. It went back, and and Todd lost again. And then in part two of this, in part one, we laid out really the 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 we laid the story of how they came to find themselves in business with each each other, Neil Gaiman and and Todd McFarlane. But in 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 episode two, you really saw that Neil tried tried to. Uh, get a reasonable resolution for this, th- th- for their differences. And it it spanned five years. And for whatever reason, I don't know if it was pride. I don't know if it was just stubbornness. I, I don't know if it was uh, just from a business perspective. Todd McFarlane would not meet Neil where Neil asked to be met. And eventually, both sides talk about the straw that broke the camel's back, uh, a, a phrase I've been hearing since I was a kid, but, uh, since I was a kid, but, but it really literally, uh, both, both parties snapped, both parties snapped and it headed to lawyers and it headed to a lawsuit. And before we go into all of the other details of, 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 of what happened, I'm I'm just going to kind of lead with Todd loses every count. It is a devastating loss for Todd. Neil Gaiman prevails on every single count in this conflict with Todd McFarlane. One of the reasons that I have been hesitant over the three years of this show to bring this uh, this episode to light, to cover it, one of, the, one of my hesitations was it gets into a lot of personal information. The author of the book uh, that, that serves as the source material for these episodes is The World versus Todd McFarlane as uh, written by Daniel Best as I expressed in part one and part two, he put so much research in. He, uh, you can pay, you can get court documents, you can get depositions, you can get the the the, the agreements. All of this is is filed. It's public, uh, but but it takes some threading of some needles, paying of some fees. And Daniel Best did all that, collated it all, and wrote this incredible book. It's on Amazon. It was on Amazon, you know, before I came on the show. I'm sure it'll be there when when this episode reaches you. The World versus Todd McFarlane by Daniel Best covers both the Tony the Tony Twist uh, trials and the Neil Gaiman trial. But there's some personal information in there, there, there and it's stuff that I'm not going to share with you. The, the, if you want to find it, it's in the book. That there will be facts and figures that that I omit from this because it's just it's a little it'll, it's a little too much. But also, it it was this is an all encompassing topic. If you're going to start, you got to go all the way. You got to finish it. The trial, I, I, I could read to you some of the back and forth because because Daniel Best has uh, testimony. He has the actual recorded testimony that he draws from back and forth. And really what it's going to be is Todd contradicting himself on, on the stand, uh, his attorney, uh, you know, crying out for a dismissal or, or an objection, the, the court, the, the judge saying overruled, the, you know, uh, Neil Gaiman's lawyers can proceed, and then there's some, some, some. It's it's a, I would say flippant, flippant back and forth, and and I'm going to save you from all that. You can get this book, you can read that yourself, uh, but there is actual testimony that goes back and forth. Uh, but at the end of the day, it uh, the key factors of the case were presented to the jury as follows. I am reading from page 117 of The World versus Todd McFarlane uh, as, as written by Daniel Best. 
The key factors of the case were presented to the jury as follows. Neil Gaiman was asked, not hired, to write Spawn Number 9. His work on the title was not done under a work-for-hire contract. In the process of writing the script for Spawn 9, Neil Gaiman created two brand-new original characters, Angela and Cogliostro, along with a derivative character named Medieval Spawn. Neil Gaiman also wrote a partial script for Spawn 26, along with a three-issue Angela miniseries, which had been collected and reprinted as a trade paperback. Final sales figures for Spawn 9 was 900,000 copies. Uh, let's just go to that, the, the determination by the jury in the case was that Neil Gaiman was asked, not hired. They agreed with this assessment, that there was no work for hire agreement. There was, Neil did not sign a document and you got to go back and you go, why? In retrospect, and I can tell you that they have, you know, changed their policies Uh, a few years back in a very strange very strange conversation, I, I'm going to say this is in the 2009-2010 era, Todd called me up and asked me if I would pencil an issue of Spawn. I said, yes. The next thing I knew, he said, I wanted Greg to do the storytelling, so Greg Capullo is going to give you the breakdowns, and then you draw over that, and then I'll ink over your pencils, which I thought was an unnecessary uh, step, but it, it, it really revealed Todd's reliance on Greg Capullo's storytelling what he saw in his mind i did about eight pages total in this issue it really was uh i think todd came to the same conclusion that the layouts by greg provided him everything that he would need but he had already advertised me as the penciler i'm on the cover as the penciler he inked the pages they saw print and but but before they went to print uh he had uh someone from his office and i used to know everybody at McFarland, there have been two or three different waves of people. There's never been a lot of people. We're talking about four or five people, maybe at, at any given time since Todd started his companies. And I knew everybody there. At, at present, I know no one there. I do not know a single person who works alongside him. Everybody I know uh, ended up leaving over the last, I think the last people left about four years ago. And that was the last person that, that I knew. That person called me up and said, Rob, we need you to sign this work for hire. We ha- absolutely have to have you sign this release for these eight pages. And so they emailed it to me and I sent it back. But I had let it sit for a couple of weeks just because it was not, like, I don't own Spawn. I don't have any claims. But no, 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 Rob, we absolutely have to have this. We need this. And I understand that. Like I said to you in, in part two, for issues of Profit, Brigade, Bloodstrike, everybody that worked on that. You know, I have signed agreements. I have work for hire. It's called a voucher. I signed them with Marvel or DC. You know, regardless, they, they, they know that, that I don't own Spider-Man. But if I'm going to draw Spider-Man, I'm going to sign something to that effect. There is no agreement between Neil and Todd. And Todd kept telling Neil he was going to make, you know, he was making love payments. And in part two, we covered how Neil said, I, I'd rather not have the love payment. I'd rather have a contract. There were multiple times to get this right. Again, I don't know if it was stubbornness, if it was pride. Uh, I'm not sure what went into the fact that they didn't paper this in any way, shape, or form. But that allowed for these rulings. Having nothing, having no work for hire, no binding agreement, the fact that he asked him, uh, requested him to do this, and then Neil did it, it fell out outside of the lines of a work for hire agreements. So uh, 
then there was an accounting. You know, they 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 they, they went through the accounting process and what Neil had been what Neil had been paid for what he had done to date. And we detailed in the first episode, he Todd said, I'm giving all of you a hundred thousand dollars. Dave Sim a hundred thousand, Frank Miller a hundred thousand, Alan Moore a hundred thousand. And Neil was Neil was completely on board with that and and that's that's the price that he knew he was accepting in advance for the specific issue spawn number nine where he introduced angela cogliastro and medieval spawn but shortly after the comics came all the merchandising and all the toys and according to neil and his deposition and his 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 testimony he had informed that he had been getting payments and we covered again in issue two it's in this book that he got a random check for around $20,000 one time with just a, we love you, Neil. And it was an understanding that that was for a toy. Neil then realized that because he has no papered uh, understanding with Todd, that Todd could die. Todd could sell to Hasbro, to Mattel, to anyone else. And Neil had no uh, paper trail of, of the agreement, the understanding, the love payments. And then they could abruptly stop. And we also covered how, and our kids do really affect us you know neil's uh son he said had really liked the characters that he had done and wanted to see him do more so i think neil got emotionally invested in this now and took pride in 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 the way that his characters shaped the spawn universe and 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 really influenced everything from the day that book came out everything changed he had really lit a fuse of imagination and opened portals and options that weren't there previously but Neil says the payments that were on again, off again, officially stopped in 1997. Reading from page 118 of The World versus Todd McFarlane by Daniel Best, it says, As payments stopped in 1997, royalties were due for Angela, Red Angela, Medieval Spawn, Cogliostro Toys, Spawn Angela, Angela and the Pray for the Hunter posters, Spawn Trading Cards, and Pog Sets. Spawn Trade Paperback number 2 and number 6, Curse of Spawn 9, 10, 11, Foreign printings of Spawn 9 and the Angela miniseries, along with all other appearances of Angela Cogliostro and Medieval Spawn. Uh, in both comic book form, as well as other media, namely the Spawn animated series and the New Line Cinema Spawn motion picture. Neil, Ga- Neil Gaiman had uh, opposed, and it, it was part, it's part of the testimony that you can read. Uh, he didn't like that his biography in, in one of the editions of Angela was the sole... Only he was given a biography. Greg Capullo was not. It was only Neil to sell it on the back of Neil's names, of which his attorneys press the McFarland people, including Todd himself. You know, did they acknowledge that they were trying to dine out solely on Neil's name here? And it says Neil Gaiman's biography and name had been used without Gaiman's knowledge or permission in connection with the publication of Angela's Hunt uh, by Todd McFarland. Similar uses of his name and biography uh were due like like the the use of that and the promotion of that he felt he he was due uh the jury found that neil gaiman had a copyright interest in the works at issue all the stuff that i just named to you all of the works the toys the comics that the jury found that todd mcfarland had breached neil gaiman's right of publicity under wisconsin law which is where neil lived which he was due damages and mandatory attorney fees. And that Todd McFarlane had passed off Neil Gaiman's works as his own in violation of his rights under the Lanham Act. 
So we got a full verdict here. We got all these counts. I'm, I'm going to share them with you. And, and, and again, like we're just, we're going to go back and kind of parse everything through these final judgments. I'm, I'm going to try and go through these as fast as I can, but it's 15 counts. Todd lost all 15 counts of this lawsuit with Neil Gaiman. There is not a win on the ledger here. So number one, does Neil Gaiman have a copyright interest in the following medieval spawn? Yes. Cogliostro, yes. Spawn issue number 26, where they both appear, yes. So that's that's all covered under spawn, uh, on, on under count number one. Count number two, would a reasonable person in Neil Gaiman's position have discovered prior to January 24th, 1999, that the McFarland defendant was claiming to be the sole owner of the copyright interest in the following? Medieval Spawn, Cogliostro, Angela, Angela 1, 2, 3, 1, 2, and 3. And it says no, 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 and no to all of those. Count number three, did the plaintiff and McFarland defendants enter into a contract in 1992? Yes, they, 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 the jury said. Did McFarland breach the contract? This is count number four. Uh, yes. Number five, did the plaintiff and McFarland defendants enter into a contract in 1997? Yes, the jury determined. So that's five counts against Todd already. Number six, did the McFarland defendant breach the 1997 contract? Yes. Number, uh, <laughs> uh, so, so, so moving on, was the defendant's failure to identify plaintiff Gaiman as co-author of Spawn 26, Spawn Volume 6, uh, was defendant's failure to identify Neil as the co-author of all these works a false dis- description or or false representation of the work? Yes. Does Neil Gaiman believe the defendant's failure to identify him as a co-author of Spawn uh, likely damage him? Yes. Spawn Volume 6? Yes. Pathway to Judgment uh, damage him? Yes. So so another three. Did plaintiff Neil Gaiman consent in writing the use of his name and, biogra- <clears throat> and biography on Angela's hunt? No. Did the plaintiff... Did plaintiff Neil Gaiman make misrepresentation or omissions of material to defendant concerning his DC Comics contract during negotiations? No. And it just keeps going on. Major counts, minor counts. The jury ordered Todd McFarlane and Image Comics to pay Neil Gaiman $45,000 with costs. And that was the maximum uh, that Neil could receive. Uh <clears throat> For, for the counts for his name is biography. They also had to pay attorney's fees of $33,639. The big, the big judgment is that Todd McFarlane and Neil Gaiman were now named shared owners, shared owners of Angela medieval spawn and Cogliostro. They also shared ownership of comic book spawn number nine and spawn 26, as well as the three issue Angela trade uh, series and trade paperback. Uh, Todd McFarlane would have to provide an accounting for all of the works and both Todd McFarlane and Image Comics were denied permission permission from publishing or distributing uh, Angela material using the biographical content and information uh, of Neil Gaiman for purposes of trade and promotion without his specific written consent. A lot, a lot of rulings, a lot of adjustments, a lot of you know n- new parameters have been established here. It said here the account was damaging on page 120 of the World versus Todd McFarlane. Uh, Todd had paid Neil a total of $212,000 for the bulk of what he had been broken down 
for the story of Spawn Number 9 by this time. And that included $10,000 in an upfront payment, royalties of $80,000, a bonus of $10,000. Uh, so that, that came to the $100,000 that McFarland had promised him. Neil also uh, had been paid $3,300 for three pages of script for Spawn number 26. The Angela miniseries earned Neil Gaiman $75,000, including the trade paper back sales. Uh, foreign sales had seen an additional $5,200, and he had been paid twenty just shy of $25,000 for toy sales and posters. But elsewhere, things did not look promising. It, 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 it reads, two sets of Spawn Pogs had been a bust, but Todd had been granted an, an advance of $100,000 from a Canadian company for the rights to both sets, and he was paid $100,000 per sets, so he hit, Todd's complete share was $200,000. Neil Gaiman had been paid $600, $675, just $675 for the use of Angela in that Pog set, and he had been paid $34 for the use of Medieval Spawn. So there was some accounting to catch up in, in, in regards to that Todd got $200,000 for those sets, and then he paid, it looks like he, he, he paid Neil uh, just about $700 total, $700 not $700,000, $700 for both uh, Angela and Medieval Spawn to be included in those pogs. Uh, it said the trading cards fared slightly better for Neil Gaiman. Produced by Jim Lee's Wildstorm, it, uh, it earned Todd McFarlane $323,000 in royalties, of which Neil Gaiman was paid $1,900. Uh, there was a Chromium set that was produced by Tops, and that generated royalties of $61,000, of which Neil got $139. The third set featuring Angela in the Image Universe card set, again issued by Tops, had generated $15,000 for McFarlane, and Gaiman was paid $61. $61. Not, again, don't add anything to it. Just $61. Uh, so the amount due to Neil Gaiman at the end of all of this was estimated to be as high as $300,000. Again, reading directly from Daniel Best book, as high as $300,000 in just back accounting that 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 was owed to Neil on top of the uh, $45,000 for misrepresenting his, his biography and his uh, $33,000 in attorney's fees. So that, that, that uh, estimate is, is, is of, of, of back royalties as I read in this book is $300,000. It says very clearly, Neil Gaiman was not thrilled to be part, a part owner of the spawn universe. Uh, he was, he believed that that, in his words, that ship had sailed. He said, and I quote Neil Gaiman, in 1997 to 1998, maybe in 1999, the idea of me doing Medieval Spawn uh, with Batman for DC Comics would have had some value. The idea of Angela and the X-Men would have had some value. He said, it's now 2002, and frankly, Spawn doesn't sell well anymore, Neil says. The comic is not a very well-selling comic, characters are no longer popular medieval spawn has been long since forgotten and the kids who bought the toys are now uh growing up in colleges even angela he said todd killed her character off in spawn 100 i look at it and it would be incredibly attractive to any publisher as far as me doing a book but me doing a book with medieval spawn doesn't bring added value to the table that is a direct quote from Neil Gaiman himself in how he saw what he had just won in 2002. Uh, 
says here again, McFarland now owed Neil Gaiman an immediate payment of $45,000 in damages, liable for the cost and after accounting as much as $300,000. Not only that, but he had lost the copyrights to both characters and issues of Spawn. This would count cost him money down the track as any collected editions of Spawn would either be missing issues or he'd have to negotiate with Neil Gaiman and pay for the inclusion of those issues. Professionally, it was a massive blow to Tom McFarlane who had long rallied for creators' rights by appropriating Neil Gaiman's characters and not paying him. There were some who pointed out his apparent hypocrisy and noted that by all appearances, he was no better than the companies that he had railed against, complained about, notably Marvel and DC Comics. McFarlane instantly appealed this to the Seventh Circuit, which noted that the judgment was not final and limited its consideration to the injunction requiring McFarlane to acknowledge Neil Gaiman's co-ownership of the copyright. The Seventh Circuit dismissed the violation of rights under the Latham Act. It would not be the end, though, and the case would go back for retrial. Uh, But the case had been about Angela, not Miracle Man. So McFarlane announced plans for a Miracle Man statue and reactivated his plans to bring the Miracle Man character back into the pages of Spawn. This prompted Neil Gaiman to finally act on behalf of Miracle Man. I'm going to go ahead and keep this Miracle Man portion short and sweet. Neil Gaiman says in regards to Todd deciding, well, I'm going to, you know, Use Miracle Man because nothing here has been decided in regards to Miracle Man. In in episode two, we we covered that the character Miracle Man, extremely popular, a, a critically acclaimed piece of work between both Alan Moore and Neil Gaiman, who who co-authored the incredible works, celebrated, now available as omnibuses from Marvel Comics. The uh, Todd believed that he had purchased Miracle Man when he bought a company. Uh, that had gone bankrupt, Eclipse Comics, and he had tried to barter with Miracle, with Miracle Man and the rights to Miracle Man with Todd, I mean with Neil Gaiman. Neil Gaiman here comments and says, I used to think Todd actually had some rights in Miracle Man. And then I'm going to jump uh, four paragraphs where Neil says he did not. Uh, as the court case established, Todd obviously did not, as he had been claiming, own Miracle Man. Uh, As far as I can tell, or any of the lawyers working with us could tell, Todd probably doesn't actually own a single share of Miracle Man. He has no copyright in any of the existing work. And currently, Todd has another trademark application in on Miracle Man on the grounds that it was an abandoned trademark, which we have opposed. Uh, There very well may need to be a final court case to tie up some of the last loose ends of Miracle Man. Again, quoting Neil, which may end up going to some very fun places indeed. And then he references, at least with 1602, there's the money there to fight it. And there are a lot of places that want to republish the work that's been done on Miracle Man and the new work that Mark and I hope to do. So what is 1602? 1602 is the book that Neil Gaiman wrote as a result of his new partnership with Marvel. We ended the third part I mean, we ended the second part of our Neil Gaiman versus Todd McFarlane magnum opus that we're covering here with Neil reaching out to Marvel to help him. They had a press conference. Joe Quesada, Bill Jemis, Marvel Comics stood behind Neil Gaiman and said, we are going to finance this battle that Neil Gaiman is going to have with Todd McFarlane. And we have created a shared company, an LLC, Marvels and Miracles. Miracles and Marvels, whichever it was. Miracles, Marvels, Marvels, Miracles. They 
joined with Neil and Neil would then write this book. And 1602 is basically early America and the Marvel Universe happening there. It's like an Elseworlds tale. So you get all of the classic Marvel characters that were born in the Stan Jack, 1962, 1963. That all happens in 1602 instead. It's very imaginative. It's brilliant. I loved it. It was the number one uh, comic when it was released, I believe, in August uh, of, of, of that year. But Neil... Uh, and interestingly enough about 16OT, the reason it was said in the time that it was, was that after the events of 9-11, Neil didn't want to do anything with modern warfare, bombs, missiles. Uh, he, he just, he had had it. And so setting it in early, early America, way back in those ages, provided him uh, all of the, the necessary components that he could supply a story on his terms and not contradict the things that he had claimed following 9-11. Highly recommend 1602 on its own merit. It's just a really fun and imaginative, uh, one of the very best Elseworlds. I can't believe that at some point down the line, we will not see an animated rendition of this, if not an entire live action. Uh, maybe it's a series. I don't know, but it's great. And it is by, again, this in incredibly acclaimed author. But Neil is referring to the fact that uh, with, with, with his LLC, his joint company with Marvel, the money is there to fight Todd on this. Because that was the big deal. Marvel got in bed with Neil in the hopes of getting work out of Neil, who had not given them any as yet. And this created several business opportunities with which Marvel and Neil then engaged. And, and most of it was surrounding the 1602 and subsequent sequels, of which there were several. Uh, there's, there's some commentary from Daniel Best here saying that the trial wasn't without its controversy. And I'm not going to uh, comment on the specific creator's that he cites, he does say that these are semi, not semi, he, he, he does say, say it, it, it results, the, the opinion of why Neil won uh, resulted in misogynistic comments from creators who couldn't accept Neil Gaiman's win for what it was. And one creator says, believe, says, uh, just between you, me, and the lamppost, I think it had more to do with the all-female jury at the trial. It wouldn't matter what Todd and Neil were disagreeing about. An all-female jury was going to find Todd in the wrong and Neil in the right. Because Todd is Todd and Neil is Neil. That speaks to the utter charm of Neil Gaiman. Okay, that is really what that is. What that's saying is the, the charm and the swoon that Neil Gaiman uh, can provide. And maybe uh, Todd's gruff... Uh, personality, and if you read the testimony, uh, I think the, the 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 testimony was as as is the case sometimes was testy. The, Todd is testy in his testimony. Neil is obviously very charming. This goes on to say that uh, had the judge asked them, I am sure the all female jury would have been happy to give Neil the rights to not only spawn but Todd's house, his cars, his Madonna costumes. Uh, the Mark McGuire baseballs and anything else that Neil had expressed interest in. So that is an opinion. I'm not going to identify the creator uh, who said that or another creator who who uh, commented on it. But on page 123 of the World versus Todd McFarlane says at the end of 2002, Todd McFarlane was faced with losing two major court cases and looking down the barrel of $25 million totals in damages to both Tony Twist, when you combine Tony Twist and Neil Gaiman, plus lawyers' costs, and the costs were rising. And that is how that period resolves. And then kind of what follows 
is a little bit of a little bit of nickel and diamond as as as, as we wrap up the the judgments and the awards and and kind of gives you a, a a picture of what was going on at the time, but. Neil won on every count. He just he all the counts listed is is where Neil. Uh, I mean, and, and again, which which lent to people debating how could this be possible. And uh, look, we we read about juries and jury selection all the time, and maybe it was key in this case. I wasn't there. I don't know. I was like the rest of the comics industry every afternoon waiting for the updates after this. The, the, the 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 court broke and the and the and the and the and the lawyers talked and the comic book reporting sites and some of the media sites would pick up on this and share it at large and that is how we got this news but we were all paying attention in 2002 you can count on that what happened a little little while following this neil gaiman trial was that todd had appealed his tony twist verdict and in july of 2003 it was deemed that uh the $24,500,000 judgment against Todd uh, that had been awarded to Tony Twist was voided. And Tony Twist vowed to take Todd back to court, which he did, and they had a second trial. And the good news on the second Tony Twist trial is that ended up in only a $15 million judgment against, uh, against Todd rather than the $24 million and some change not that $500,000 is some change, but the, instead of $24,500,000, the, the next time out, it was closer to $15 million. Uh, yeah, so he, he and Tony go back at it with new terms. The, the appeal, uh, the impressive part about the appeal that Todd sent, uh, put forth was that it was signed by... Such famous authors as Michael, authors, such famous authors and writers as Michael Crichton, Larry David, Elmore Leonard, Harry Shearer, Shearer Ron Shelton, uh, guys from the Authors Guild, who signed themselves to a brief, uh, which which stated that that Todd had freedom of speech on his side in regards to how he was depicting Tony Twist. Again, the appeal worked. It, it vacated the previous judgment. Todd was back in trial uh, with, with Tony Twist, I believe, sometime in 2004. So you guys now, like like I said, you know, the last time all this was going down, I said, it's like Attack of the Clones. Like, it's 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 like, uh, you know, during 2002, remember, that's like Attack of the Clones. We're meeting Hayden Christensen as, as Anakin Skywalker. I mean, now we're pushing two years later back in trial with Tony Twist. This is 2004. Uh so, so strangely enough, again, it's it's another it's another loss, uh, it's another loss to 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 Tony as the as the court. Uh, I, I'm sorry, it's, yeah, it's another loss for Todd to Tony, and uh, Tony is this time awarded 15 million in damages. On page 128 of Daniel Best, The World vs. Todd McFarlane, it says the trial in 2004 went the same way as the 2000 trial and result, resulted in another loss for McFarlane. The jury found that McFarlane had infringed on Twist's publicity, right, twists, twists publicity rights. Not as crushing as the first trial, though. This time around, the jury awarded $15 million, $15 million in damages to Tony Twist, not including costs. Uh, again, Todd McFarlane appealed. And here it says, and get ready for this. This is, this, this is, it says, but it was too late. 
prior uh, to that, to the appeal, Tony Twist had petitioned the court to enforce payment and issued writs of garnishments and summons. Twist's, uh, Twist asked for Todd McFarlane to turn over property, physical IP, and uh, have his bank accounts frozen, including personal accounts, pending an outcome from the courts, pending the appeal. Uh, this I am reading from page 129 of uh, Daniel Best, The World versus Todd McFarlane. It says, Before Todd could empty those accounts, uh, Bank of America handed over uh, a personal account. I'm not going to read you the amount in it. Wells Fargo did the same. So two personal accounts were frozen and uh, set aside in case uh, the appeals went Tony Twistway and he wanted to, 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 to know that the assets were there in order to pay, pay him. He had worked in advance of this appeal and uh, Todd, it just, it, it, it then follows up with a uh, very scathing remark from Todd to the media about lawsuits and insurance. And uh, so th- this one twist appeal uh, appeared to have put his grip on, on Todd at the end of this. So what this represent, what this then ends up in doing is Todd McFarlane productions, several of his companies file for bankruptcy. And maybe you remember this, maybe you don't. Uh, again, as, as we continue to give facts and figures on our observations of things that happen along the way, uh, you know, we share the memos and, and, and we share the details. And some of that stuff has been lost to the sands of time. And so in, in early 2005, Todd is in bankruptcy. He has uh, faced with insurance companies refusing to cover him, cover him which, which if you read this, it, it did happen. Todd kicked these to his insurance thinking they would pay. They said, we're not paying for that the insurance you have doesn't cover that. That's the easiest way to cover it. It's in the book. It's something you could read in the book that I'm not going to go in detail here, but the insurance would not cover for Todd. So faced with the insurance companies refusing to cover him for the full amount of potential losses, as well as uh, having fought a losing battle with Neil Gaiman, Todd McFarlane placed Todd McFarlane Productions into uh, the security of bankruptcy chapter 11. Now, here's the deal. When you grow older, you realize that bankruptcy is a legal maneuver with which to protect your assets. It it has a negative connotation, but all of the really smart, uh, celebrated businessmen you've heard about, uh, many of them billionaires, have utilized bankruptcy in order to uh, protect their assets from incidents like this or, or, or when things are contested. So there's, 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 I think, a wrong... Uh, a wrongful light cast on bankruptcy. No, your host has never once filed anything bankruptcy. So this is nothing to do with anything that I have touched or, or been imparted. But as I, as I have gotten older uh, and as your 56 year old host have seen a lot of stuff, uh, bankruptcy is seen as a weapon. It is a maneuver. It is a legal strategy. There should not be shame attached to it. Todd just uh, looking to get to, to protection entered into the chapter 11 bankruptcy. Unlike chapter seven, uh, which is more of a liquidation, he was able to reorganize under the chapter 11. Uh, chapter 11, it says here is for companies uh, seen as a shield to hide behind. It would allow him breathing room and allow him to continue to publish, operate, albeit under the guise of the court. Uh, 
The downside was that by electing to go Chapter 11, McFarlane, his insurance company's twist, Game and Image Comics, would be tied to the courts for the next decade to come. That was not known when these filings took place. The move was able to be done due to the setup of McFarlane's companies. In order for a Spawn comic to be published, Todd McFarlane Productions would commission the comic. It would then assign the work to the creative team who would write and draw the comic and hand the work back to Todd McFarlane Productions, who would then pay the creators. Todd McFarlane Productions would publish the comics and liaise with Image Comics, who would then distribute the final comic book. So again, a new, you know, this is this is how everything was set up. It says, in simple terms, this is 131 of The World versus Todd McFarlane by uh, Daniel Best, page 131. In simple terms, TMP, Todd McFarlane Productions, was the company that employed Todd McFarlane to both write and draw. And as the publisher of the offending comics, it was responsible for the work being published in the first place. The directors of TMP, uh, uh, it just says who the directors of TMP were. And it says that and Todd is among those, pe- those people named. Uh, they were in charge of hiring and producing the books. Image was responsible for distributing them. And, if, and Todd would continue to write and draw them in, 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 in whatever capacity. Uh, Todd, at no point did he, Todd personally enter into bankruptcy. It was his company's. Uh, so, so that is how he continued to operate. But again, as we are heading into, let's go by Star Wars movies again, the, the, the summer of Revenge of the Sith, Todd has uh, thrown his company, some entities, into bankruptcy. There was a lot of hemorrhaging of money going on, and I'm not going to get into all of this. Some of the numbers I'll share, but at this, there's a lot of numbers. This, this is the juice. Uh, this is the the tea of the book. This this next section is the tea of the book. I will share very little of the tea. You, you need to buy Daniel's book if you want to get all of this information. A real reason why Todd filed for Chapter 11 was that Todd McFarlane Productions was hemorrhaging money. A disclosure from 2006 uh, was a statement drawn up to liquidate the assets of Todd McFarlane Productions. Uh, This document gives an incredibly clear insight into what McFarlane was facing. Uh, He had a claim for violation of right to publicity uh, brought by Tony Twist. And so that was kind of claim number one. This is all the cases that Todd and his companies were facing uh, here, uh, a, a status of which was gleaned from f- papers filed in March 2007. The Tony Twist versus Todd McFarlane, Todd McFarlane Productions, uh, was, was you know, there was an action to enforce that $15 million judgment. Uh, this is pursuant to the Tony Twist settlement agreement. Twist was due to file a notice of satisfaction of judgment with respect to an appeal. In simple terms, a notice of satisfaction of judgment is as follows. Once the judgment is paid, whether in installments or as a lump sum, a judgment must, uh, a creditor must acknowledge that the judgment has been paid by filing a satisfaction of judgment. Uh, Twist was due to tell the court that he had had his cash along with a suitable resolution and was happy to finally be closed. That was a pending document that is part of uh, March 2007. They, they were anticipating that Tony would, would would say that he had been taken care of. Uh, there was a TMP International, Todd McFarlane Productions, versus American International Specialty Lines Insurance, a claim for wrongful denial of the U.S. District Court, District Court Insurance Coverage. The case was pending at the time of this uh, paperwork. 
it, it was pending for 120 days, having been approved by the courts. The Hanover Insurance Company versus Todd McFarlane Productions International, comma, Todd McFarlane Productions Incorporated, comma, Todd McFarlane. This was an action for a declaratory judgment regarding coverage for the litigation. As with all open cases, this is pending. Pursuant to the Tony Twist settlement agreement, Twist was due to file a dismissal with prejudice of all claims that he had filed. In March 2007, McFarland's camp would file counterclaims against the insurance companies, Hanover's Citizens and General Star Insurance Companies, due to the three companies' failure to provide a defense, uh, excuse me, a defense, a defense and finances to McFarland for the Twist case. So this is all the stuff in the court docs, what Todd is fighting and what he is dealing with at this time. Uh, Neil Gaiman versus Todd McFarlane. Uh, uh, we're just going down the ledger here. Breach of contract, copyright for ownership, violation of rights of publicity, among the other claims that Todd lost on. Uh, said this could be this could prove to be the most damaging of all to Todd in terms of reputation. Uh, in in terms of reputation, this case again was pending uh, due to appeal. Uh, Gaiman had indicated he would be now seeking an additional claim of $2 million, an additional claim of $2 million that he was going to tag onto this during the appeals. Marvels and Miracles LLC versus Todd McFarlane Productions. This is the company that Marvel and Neil Gaiman had, had created to fight Todd. This was a notice of opposition against Todd filed by, filed by Neil in the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office claiming that he was the only rightful owner of the Miracle Man trademark opposing Todd's registration. The... Uh, Proceedings in this were suspended in 2006 pending the outcome of the Neil Gaiman versus Todd McFarlane appeal. Ultimately, after losing the case, Todd abandoned any attempt to trademark Miracle Man and handed it over to Neil Gaiman. There were other cases for Todd to contend with over the years, uh, and it goes on to read several other lawsuits that Todd was involved with uh, from 1994 to present. So, so there's a lot going on. And uh, Palisades Marketing, Roth Estate, New Line Cinema had filed against Todd about a breach of contract. Uh, Kiss, uh, Gene Simmons of Kiss had filed against Todd for a breach of contract. So there was a lot of, lot, a lot of stuff going on in regards to Todd and his corporations. And uh, then <laughs> there was the... Uh, in 2002, Todd attempted to explain the difference between Todd McFarlane, and the person, and Todd McFarlane, the businessman. The question went, and did you have those kind of discussions with Neil Gaiman? Todd says, just to clarify, who are you asking the question to? Are you asking Todd McFarlane, head of the toy company, the head of the publishing company, part owner of Rummage Comics, or the individual? So will you ask your question and ask me which of those people you are asking that question to? The lawyer says, well, they are all sitting in front of me. Todd says, but they each have a different agenda during their day, a different task to accomplish. I'm sure you do as well as both a father and a lawyer. The lawyer says, I guess what I'm really looking for are the specific subjects of the disagreement that you tried to work through in this capacity as the head of Todd McFarlane Productions and that you were not able to do. I, I'm, I'm not limiting it. I'm following up on your answer that you gave me as the head of Todd McFarlane Productions. If a different hat is appropriate, put it on and tell me which hat you're putting on. Todd says, yeah, right. Can I just simplify this even more? The lawyer said, sure. Todd says, can we assume that if I don't say anything, 
if I don't say anything, it is as the head of Todd McFarlane Productions because 99.9%, if not 100% of this, is as Todd McFarlane Productions. I told you this was testy and I told you this was cagey. The lawyer says, okay. Then Todd says, so unless I stipulate something different, if I talk about myself, I'm talking about myself as the person running Todd McFarlane Productions. Uh, this goes on to list on page 136 of the World versus Todd McFarlane. Todd had at least 20 different business names that he was operating under. The, detail, the details of the various companies were presented to the court as follows, and I've added McFarlane's own comments to each company. And then this goes on to list how Todd sees himself operating within each company. And you should buy the book because I am not going to read that to you. And it goes on and on until that ends. The assets and liabilities. This is the... When I, when I talk to you about the tea, this is the tea. As I said earlier, I'm not going to spill all this tea, but I'm going to continue. Uh, before filing for bankruptcy, Todd McFarlane took total sole ownership of Todd McFarlane Productions. For the duration of the bankruptcy, he was 100% liable for all the debt. It says here in 2004, McFarlane Productions listed its assets as $1,029,000 with $740,000 of that tied up in prepaid legal expenses. He owed 100 I'm sorry, he owed $500,000 in a secured loan. Another $71,000 was owed to comic creators for work done on Spawn. He had two unsecured debts of 247,000 and 703,000. Then there's the $15 million uh, that he owed to Tony Twist and a seven-figure amount which would be due to Gaiman if he one on appeal. Uh, it says here, Todd listed 33 trademarks as assets, including Spawn, uh, McFarland's Evil Prophecy, Miracle Man, Tremor, Medieval Spawn, Spawnmobile, Spawn Alley, Violator, Curse of the Spawn, Angela, Overt Kill, Violator, Monster Rig, and The Clown. I could do an entire episode on Overt Kill. Anyway, some of these trademarks had been filed more than once and most were considered to be dead, meaning they were inactive. Uh, Mc, it says McFarland's main creditors were Tony Twist, fifteen million. The law firm of the law firm of Reisman and Berger, which I am not reading this wrong, was due three million dollars for services rendered to Tony Twist. Uh, a loan of five hundred thousand dollars. The Neil Gaiman and McFarland Toys, uh, and then it it lists. It lists actual comic creators that you will have heard of. Inkers, pencilers, writers. I'm not going to read their names. It says, in total, in December of 2004, Todd owed $20 million. And it wasn't going to stop there. He was forced to list everyone that he owed money to. Uh, in 2004, Todd McFarlane Productions posted a net loss of $283,000. This was down from 2003 when he posted a loss of $423,000. Uh, McFarlane Productions total assets, as evaluated in 2006, were totaled at one million two hundred thirty-eight thousand dollars, against liabilities of two million five hundred thousand dollars. So, so Todd had assets of one point two million in 2004, against liabilities of two point five million. It said other people jumped onto the case as time rolled on. Film Roman, the company who developed and created the, produced the Spawn animated series, they uh, tagged on an additional $1.2 million in 2005 uh, to, to debt, debt that Todd owed. 
the two biggest assets that Todd McFarlane had listed were the Mark McGuire balls, uh, but they had cost him $219,000 and were now valued at twenty grand. I You cannot make this up. Now valued at twenty grand, uh, he still owned the 1998 70th home run ball, which he paid three million dollars for. Uh, the 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 one that is worth uh, twenty thousand dollars now is this is six, the 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 69th home run ball of 1998. The 70th ball, which he paid thirty three million of, it does not say what that was currently evaluated as. Uh, as of July of two thousand six, so now we're jumping. Todd McFarland's assets were at $1.2 million and a liquidation value of those assets at $248,000. Now, Daniel Best, being a comic book guy, really knows his stuff and says and adds that Todd McFarland owns all the original art that he drew for the Spawn series, which he does. Uh, that, that is a known fact. And nowhere in the assets did Todd list that artwork. That artwork belonged to Todd personally, not part of TMP, Todd McFarland Productions. Uh, it said Todd McFarlane, the individual, was far from destitute. And he is correct that there is millions of dollars uh, of, of value in that artwork. Easy, easy. The, the next thing uh, is is that it goes down and again, it, it, there's, a, there's a sentence that says, the list of creditors was damning. It talks about some loans, and then it again goes on to list. Let me see. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 comic book creators uh, that I won't list here that were owed money as far as 2006. Uh, Neil Gaiman was then added to that list. He was trying to pay as many people as possible and got as many people to settle for pennies on the dollars or nickels on the dollars, whatever. He got people to sign off. Uh it says at the, on page 143, this was not a good time to be Todd McFarlane, but you barely knew it from his public persona. He kept up his brave face, kept giving interviews, and talking up Spawn along with all his various sporting hobbies. And that's true. Todd had a great game face. Really great game face. Really great poker face. So then the next section is who owned what, and it talks about the split co- copyrights. And uh, although... I'm going to tell you right now, they're not all covered, but uh, then it goes through the trademarks. Again, there's a lot of bookkeeping. When I tell you that this book has a ton of research and a ton of information, it is a treasure trove. It is a snapshot of the business of Todd McFarlane from 1995 to basically 2007, 2008. Actually, this takes you up to 2012. This was published in 2019. It says here, it was in Todd's best interest to settle with as many of the creditors as possible before the courts were forced to intervene and start stripping him of his trademarks and copyrights. And and Daniel has, on his blogs, he has detailed that at one point, because of a failure to do this in a timely manner, one of the judges said, if you do not take care of this the very next time, we will take it. We will take your trademark and your copyrights of these characters. Those were assets, maybe the most valuable assets that Todd owed. Uh, if if he did not take of his care of his creditors, the courts would be forced to intervene and strip him of his trademarks and copyrights. Uh, if 
This did not occur, this settling of creditors. McFarland was in real danger of losing Spawn, and it would not be a voluntary move. The court would order the assets to be sold at auction. At <clears throat> the courts would be ordered that the assets be sold at auction, a la Eclipse, in order to resolve any debts McFarland had. Uh, there was a lot to happen before things were going to reach that climactic stage, and Daniel Best writes, there was no way uh, that Todd was going to lose his baby. So let's wrap this thing up with all the settlements, okay? Let's let's get to all the settlements. Uh, Tony Twist, in the end, got five million dollars. Okay, uh, the 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 lawyers for Todd and Tony went back and forth, and he got five million dollars. So Tony Twist, hockey player, after several years and uh, court fees. Everybody uh, took $5 million and went home. They uh, lifted the garnishment. In accepting payment, the attorneys lifted the garnishment that had been placed on Todd McFarland Productions and his personal bank accounts at Bank of America and Wells Fargo. This was in 2007. We are in the summer of Transformers, okay? We all went in the first Michael Bay Transformers, which is then one year away from Iron Man and the, uh, you know, I guess uh, I guess in was that also the the summer of the Spider-Man Venom movie the the last of the of the uh, Tobey Maguire's or maybe that was 2006. Anyway, summer 2007, whatever movies you were seeing, this is kind of when all the stuff is going down. Uh, he you know it says of that five million, Tony Twist personally pocketed two point five million. The other going to his attorneys. So go figure that, 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 that's how things came down. So look, we, 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 we walked you through all of this. And at the end of the day, $5 million, uh, was paid from McFarland to, uh, Tony twist in that settlement. Uh, he had remember film Roman came after him. The people who made the, uh, produced the spawn show and they had tagged on it a $1.2 million judgment and Todd sets about to uh, settle that. It was undisclosed. Uh, I mean, there, 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 there's different royalties and different payments uh, along the way, but we didn't make a film Roman spawn animated series podcast that's a that's that's a uh a story for another time really the big dog here is neil gaiman what happens with neil gaiman what happens with angela what happens with this <sighs> eventually todd mcfarland would lose on appeal to neil gaiman it cost him another seven figure sum along with miracle man as late as 2009 mcfarland was still at publicly in public at least insisting he owned miracle man 2009, we have now jumped to 2009, okay? We are, uh, we're looking at Wolverine Origins, okay? We are looking at <laughs> Wolverine Origins. That so, so when we started all this, we're Attack of the Clones. We're at Wolverine Origins. Just just to give you your, your kind of, adjust your, your, your summer movie. We're in between Iron Man uh, 1 and 2. In the interim, Marvel Comics had done their business. They had done the deals with the people who had the copyrights. And they were getting ready to assume 
control of Miracle Man and uh, along along with Neil, who was going to produce it and uh, basically show run the book. So Miracle Man was officially not on the table from Todd anymore because it was determined finally that he never had it to offer. Along the way during this time, Neil Gaiman had opposed new characters in the Spawn universe that he believed were derivatives of medieval Spawn. Specifically, the, char- the character of Lord Covenant, the lead character of Spawn, Dark, the Dark Ages, and two new angels who had been introduced, Tiffany and Domina, who were, in Neil's opinion, there to take the place of Angela. So, uh, Gaiman had stated that he believed those two angels were derivatives of Angela, and he wanted to be paid for them. So, uh, McFarlane rolled the dice and he went back to trial on this, this specific issue. But because, because again, Neil had cited that he believed that now, while Medieval Spawn and Angela were off the table, Todd had created basically derivatives of those. Uh, <laughs> I mean, honestly, that, that with, with the luck that Todd had had with the courts, you would think that he wouldn't keep rolling the dice in this manner. But as we're covering here, he does. I'm going to save you some some pages of paragraphs and testimony by by the people that were working on Dark Ages Spawn as well as Todd's own testimony. I'm just going to cut to the qu- cut to the quick. Uh, the court found that Dark Ages Spawn was a derivative of Medieval Spawn. Tiffany and Domina were variations and derivatives of Angela. He was now Todd was now ordered to provide accounting for those three characters. So now, Neil Gaiman, and I'm reading directly from page 154 of The World versus Todd McFarlane, Neil Gaiman is now looking at owning, at least partially, Medieval Spawn, Cogliostro, Angela, Lord Covenant, Tiffany, and Domina. It would appear that each time McFarlane found himself in a court battle with Gaiman, he, Neil Gaiman came away owning more of Todd McFarlane's properties. That's uh, a sentence and a sad truth. So behind the scenes, negotiations started to take place. Uh, Gaiman, Neil Gaiman, decided I'm gonna I'm gonna trade medieval spawn and Cogliostro, my fifty percent of them, because he had been named as co-owner. And some people have said, as this series has gone on, I've seen some people really boldly they want to clear their throat, they want to impress you with what they know, and they say, well, Todd Neil Gaiman never owned medieval spawn. You know that that's why. That's why Todd still has him. Neil, no, no, Neil was awarded 50% of Medieval Spawn, as well as the comic book, co-ownership of the comic book that he appeared in. What Neil did is, hey, Todd, you have 50% of Angela. I have 50% of Angela. I have 50% of Medieval Spawn. You have 50% of Medieval Spawn. Same with Cogliostro and these other characters. He said, I'm going to give you 100% of Medieval Spawn and 100% of Cogliostro for you to give me 100% of Angela. Todd believed this was a win-win for both parties. He, in his mind, had no further use for the character given that he had already killed off Angela in Spawn uh, in a previous issue of Spawn. And Neil felt that he didn't have any ownership, he didn't have any use for any co-ownership of the Spawn characters. And uh, remember, Neil had already said that at this time, Spawn wasn't popular, kids had moved on, no one was buying Spawn, Spawn sales were low. Uh, all that remained uh, 
was a final account for the money. One little addition is to get Todd to completely close up and walk away with any more conflict on Miracle Man. Neil then ceded the rights to uh, Tiffany and Domina and, and the Dark Ages spawn character. So, finally, a judgment, a final judgment, an agreement was rendered between the two parties. And, uh, and Neil and Todd were, were, were appearing to be on the road to, to, to resolution. It is ordered in a judge. The judgment is entered in favor of plaintiffs and against McFarland defendants, declaring that plaintiff Neil Gaiman is a joint 50% owner of the copyrights to the publications of Spawn number 9, Spawn 26, Angela 1, 2, and 3. The content of those publications with the respective future rights and the obligations of their parties with respect hereto being resolved under the terms of their settlement agreement. It is further ordered and adjudged that judgment is entered into dismissing all remaining claims and counterclaims. So, with that proclamation, the case had run a decade. Finally closed. This also closed the last of the debtors for McFarlane, which meant now he could close out his bankruptcy once and for all. Uh, the $382,000 that had been placed in escrow in 2004 was released with interest and handed over to Neil Gaiman. He donated the entire amount to comic book-related book charities. After all the legal blustering on both sides of the fence, the issue who owned Miracle Man did not go back to court. Uh, Gaiman took more and more, as, as obviously Neil had assumed more and more control of the Spawn universe. He used that to barter and get Miracle Man back. And so, uh, not that, this is very clear to, to note, not that Todd owns the entire Spawn universe. He is no longer able to issue a library of Spawn comics without consulting and obtaining the permission from Neil Gaiman, including Spawn issues 9 and 26, nor can he reprint the Angela miniseries. On the other hand, if Neil Gaiman wanted to reprint this material, he too would have to deal and uh, come to an agreement with Todd McFarlane. This has been resolved to a degree. Early editions of Spawn trade paperback reprints often omitted issues 9 and 10, uh, 10 featuring Dave Sims Cerebus, but as of 2009, uh, both issues have been included, which means Gaiman and Sim have come to legal terms with Todd in regards to reprinting of that work. Neil Gaiman took Miracle Man and Angela to the Marvel Universe. Marvel now owned Marvel Man and Miracle Man. Angela was the bonus in the deal, uh, and they would be quick to exploit it. If these losses bothered Todd McFarlane, he never said anything about it. He shrugged publicly and moved on. But if you have seen Angela over the last 10 years on the covers of Guardians of the Galaxy, uh, if you've seen her depicted by such amazing talents such as Art Adams uh, and, and, and all of the other incredible talents that Marvel has hired to depict Angela, if you were there at the dawn of Image Comics, you sit there and you go, that was a key character in the Spawn universe, which unlocked this entire avenue with which to create again <laughs> even derivatives of that with tiffany and domina and with the dark ages spawn neil really was a key visionary in expanding the spawn universe and this set off this you know decade-long legal struggle and in the end uh angela has been co-opted owned now neil sold angela probably with some killer deal along with, I'm speculating, some 
incentives and royalties, but he cut a deal with Marvel and Angela now lives in the Marvel Universe. Now, in case you're wondering, given that I have been very public that I do not have the rights to the Youngblood characters, could they end up uh, in someone else's hands? Yes, yes, they could. I'm prepared each and every day for that to happen. So there is no rock throwing here. What, what happened to Todd with Angela could absolutely happen to me with Youngblood. It would be different in that there would be not millions of dollars of legal fees and and court battles. Uh, the Youngblood incident was, as I have said very many times, it was just a bad deal. Everybody has one really good bad deal in them. Todd had, a, it appears, several. I had one, and that's the fallout from it. But at this point in time, Angela lives in the Marvel Universe. Could Angela make it to screen? We all wonder. We've all pontificated. Is, is this the movie that they introduced Angela? Many people thought that in Guardians of the Galaxy number three, we would see our first glimpse of Angela. I'm going to tell you, that's going to be really super weird to see that happen. Uh, but this all occurred because all of it, the, 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 the decades of conflict occurred because these, at least when it comes to Neil and Todd, these agreements and as you read through this as i read through this it, it kind of wore me down i read through this for a third time to bring it to you in the greatest detail and understanding that i could and it made me sad because it did take me back to a, t uh, a time of where it felt like the egos were raging a little crazier than they've ever raged and temperaments were flaring more than 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 they seem to have ever before and maybe just cooler heads could have prevailed and prevented this entire episode, or in my case, this entire three episodes of Neil Gaiman versus Todd McFarlane. Uh, the, I think the lessons to be learned are in regards to having cooler heads, uh, putting resolutions at the top of, of, of maybe you know the priority when there's a fallout between creators. Uh the, the top of this book said Todd would pay dearly. There was consequences. It was dire. All of those things. All of those things. There was millions of dollars paid out. Uh, $5 million that turns into $2 million, $5 million to the Tony Twist accountants that turns into $2.5 million is a lot of scratch, no matter how you cut it any day and age. The hundreds of thousands of dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars given to Neil, as well as losing key characters in the universe that are now potential building blocks for something else in another universe is, uh, is strange. Whenever I see Angela on a, in a Marvel comic, I think of this entire episode because it is literally insane. And the fact that Marvel teamed with Neil, they got that 1602 uh, series and all its sequels as a result and all of the financing that went to fighting uh, Todd. Because as, as we made clear at the end of the second episode, Marvel financed this lawsuit with this entity that they created for Neil. So when Todd was battling Neil, he was battling uh, Marvel, who took a side. They took a side and uh, they, they backed Neil Gaiman. I am certain that given you know some time to reflect, I'm, I'm sure that everyone uh, on the McFarland side wished they had presented things in a cooler head or just come up with a simple transaction, uh, a work for hire. But at the end of the day, that's not what happened. And we covered it for three full episodes. How did I ever think I could fit this into two? This is insane. Uh, clearly, as you've seen, 
I don't know if, if, you know, obviously Todd's toy business is really a priority and has continued. I, I believe it was 2018, 2019, he uh, entered into an agreement. He sold uh, either 49%, 51%. It's, 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 uh, it's one of those numbers uh, to a Canadian toy company. It's not well covered by our media. Uh, Todd doesn't promote it, but people in his company will acknowledge the, uh, the, the other owner. Uh, the, if you grab the right people off the street at Image Comics, they'll tell you, oh, no, 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 yeah, yeah. Uh, the toy company does have a second owner along with Todd. And Todd clearly has a passion for making toys. He loves making toys. The toy business seems to consume uh, a tremendous, tremendous energy and attention from him. As I've said many times, why I really even knew of the name of Todd McFarlane was all of the very cool and interesting drawings that he did. Uh, there is currently a, an interview with one of the illustrators that shared a studio with Barry Windsor Smith and uh, Bernie Wrightson. His name is Michael Kaluta. Mike Kaluta, incredibly talented artist. His influence can be felt uh, in, in, in the style of both Michael Golden and Art Adams. He was a giant influence in terms of how to draw uh, pretty and attractive males and females. His big eyes, sculpted faces uh, were immediately picked up on, on, on pretty much the lion's share of Art Adams' early female fa- faces early in his career. Go look at, I think, the covers to Madame Xanadu, and you will see it from DC Comics. Uh, Michael Kaluta was talking about when Todd's art came out, and the quote, I believe, goes as this. This was instantly, you, you saw this, and you knew this. It was not from the Neil Adams school of art where, you know, Neil drew everything perfectly, and 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 and, 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 Neil, and Michael Kaluta says, and it drove everyone crazy, but Todd was having none of that. And he says, looking at Todd's artwork was like looking... At Plastic Man, it was everything, you know, exploded across the page. Todd didn't care how many widgets went into a tire or bolt. He, this is all a quote from Michael Kluda. He said, "You just stared at it because it was so interesting to look at," and that is why I I echo Michael's sentiment. And this is again, this is a very recent. I saw this in the last week. Todd really doesn't draw anymore, and when Todd inks over other people's layouts, it's not as interesting because Todd's layout, his ability to break down a page, was maybe the most unique, as unique as his actual renderings were. But that seems like it's another time, another place. It's now about toys. Uh, Over the period of time that I've been doing this, I've seen Todd at Toy Fair selling me DC toys and Dune toys, and I believe, is it Mortal Kombat? It's, It's... don't quote me on that. It's another. It's another. It's a. It's a. It's a video. It's another video game line of toys. But it, clearly, he is deeply invested in that. Has taken on this partner, and that is. Uh, I'm not sure what the end game is there. Maybe one day we read about the sale of that toy company and the incredible yield that it uh, brings forth. I'm not sure where he sits in the market when when judged by the giants of the toy industry alongside both Mattel and Hasbro. But again, Todd's interest is in. Uh, in, in these toys, uh, in, in, in as far as 2023 and going into 2024 uh, is concerned. Neil Gaiman has Sandman on the air with Netflix. I think they're heading to a second season. His Bad Omens is incredibly popular, is super buzzy, and he seems to always be writing uh, another another uh, book or screenplay. At, there was a Woodstock Film Festival recently, 
just real recently is in the last week. And the reason I was interested in the Woodstock Film Festival because my son, Chase Liefeld, is in a movie with uh, an actress named Lucy Hale. And it was making its debut there, but because of the actor strike, no actors could attend. So I was looking for news on uh, the, the movie that he that he he was in with Lucy Hale because it was having its premiere at the Woodstock Film Festival. What I saw instead was Neil Adams. I'm sorry, Neil Gaiman was Neil Gaiman sitting uh, in a chair with other writers talking about uh, the future for writers in the industry post the uh, WGA settlement on their strike and talking about all the great opportunities and all the great things that the WGA won. And so I was shocked in going to look for my son's movie with Lucy Hale. I stumbled upon Neil Gaiman there talking in his capacity as a novelist, as a screenwriter, as a showrunner. So again, both these gentlemen are doing fine. This incident was crazy. I think you've seen some of it. The numbers are insane for the there's a lot of numbers I did not give out. There's a lot of information I didn't care. I, I didn't share about. Again, the, the insurance company refusing to cover Todd is a segment I didn't uh, cover in the book, but I encourage you buy the book. You read Daniel Best, The World versus Todd McFarlane. I'm going to read you the back. We're going to wrap this up with the back of the book. Uh, again, the, 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 the quote, uh, you know, alongside a, 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 the front page of the lawsuit of Neil you know, so, and Todd McFarlane. On the back cover, it says, from Padraig O. Milioid. <laughs> Sorry, again, I, if I'm mispronouncing your name, it's got all sorts of, uh, yeah, it's got a lot. It says, in this book, Daniel Best holds up for our scrutiny, the inner workings, the gory guts, if you will, of Todd McFarlane's numerous legal classes, and those gory, glut, those gory guts are glorious indeed. Following that quote, which I read in the first episode. It says, Todd McFarlane, one of the most popular comic book artists of the past four decades. Creator of Spawn, artist of Spider-Man, Hulk, and Batman. However, there's another side of the man, a side that many people have never seen, let alone read about, but for the first time, various legal battles waged by McFarlane and others against him are laid bare. Tony Twist, Neil Gaiman, and many more. Todd McFarlane's legal battles have cost billions, and have all come down to three core choices. Find out what they are. So, we covered it. It was expansive. And again, uh, as, I, as I said at the top of the show, it was just easier to say, Neil Gaiman won. He won the first showdown. He won the appeal. And then he won the new court battle when, when Neil said, hey, that is a derivative of Medieval Spawn, and those are derivatives of Angela. So, as the author said, uh, if I was Todd, I would not enter into a lawsuit with Neil again. Uh, it was an absolute pleasure reading from Daniel Best's work. He did so much research. Search. He put so much into this, so much elbow grease. You can just tell uh, it's meticulous. It's worth buying. It's on Amazon. Look for it. Thank you for coming along for, 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 the, for the ride. Uh, Angela introduced in Spawn number nine. Opening the door of this race, the Angelus that hunt spawns, oppose them, and have done so throughout the centuries. Uh, Cogliostro, who becomes the Obi-Wan Kenobi, actually appears in the Spawn movie. Uh, there's a glimpse of a woman who is supposed to also be Angela. That was the buzz who walks by, I think, during one of the, the, the dinner party in uh, that Spawn crashes in the movie. 
it was it was understood that that was kind of a tease by the filmmakers by Todd of you know what's coming next. Angela was a really important component introduced by Neil Gaiman to expand. When Todd said, "I don't have anything. I don't have anything other than this guy," when Neil said, "Well, what else do you got? Who do they fight?" and Todd said, "I don't know." That character now resides in the Marvel universe and is often seen fighting alongside the greater uh, Marvel heroes as well as often alongside Marvel's uh, huge Guardians of the Galaxy franchise. Who knows what the future is going to hold for these characters and these creators, but as I said in the first part, this happened. It happened. Uh, We brought you the facts, the figures. We've tried to identify what is opinion and what's not. I hope you have enjoyed it. Stay with Rob's Observations as we continue to uh, go over the history of comics and bring you the comic book feuds. I, I tell you, you show up for those in the greater number. It is true. People love conflict. Uh, thank you for supporting the show and thank you for coming along for these three episodes. I hope you were entertained and educated simultaneously. So a couple of things to cover as we do an extensive wrap-up of all that we have uh, discussed here these last three episodes the the miracle man situation to clarify on miracle man again if if the entire todd and miracle man uh, scenario doesn't enter the picture i'm not sure it instigates neil to go the way that he did but certainly marvel comics was game they wanted a piece of that action they wanted to be in business with neil and of course as i've said Marvel Man has a glorious, celebrated, if not convoluted history. But the work is great. Whoever owns it, everything kind of underneath the art is, is what was peeled away and, 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 and bounced around. But the actual stories and, and, and the, the art and, and just the wonderful world of Miracle Man found its way to Marvel. Since 2009, they have been the home of Miracle Man, Marvel Man, whatever they choose to call him at, at, at any given time, over overseas in London, in Britain. Uh, originally, he was Marvel Man, but of course, they couldn't make that jump. Became Miracle Man at Eclipse Comics in the 80s, and, and Miracle Man is with Marvel today. I literally just bought the Omnibus a few weeks back. I had mentioned I had, I had been meaning to get it. I, I went to a comic store I hadn't visited in, in it looks like, nine years and wanted to support the store and, and you know, looked for as many cool things as I could consume. And boom, there was the Miracle Man uh, omnibus from, from Marvel. I know they've done different launches, different editions, uh, single issues, covers. They have really uh, shared... Miracle Man, uh, all over their 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 uh, publishing imprints. So anyway, that is the definitive home uh, for Miracle Man has been since they entered the picture and uh, took the rights uh, in, in this uh, all made possible because of this union with Neil that started because of this lawsuit between Neil and Todd McFarlane during the episode. This past episode, this third episode, I mentioned that the the work that Neil did, 1602, would make great uh, subject matter for a cartoon, for a live action series, a movie. And and since taking a pause and, and coming back to the mic, it was announced that 
the second season of What If will have a 1602-related, uh, 1602-themed episode. So really interesting. Again, it, it, it is another example of the world-building that Neil does. And certainly, I remember flipping through at the time, uh, just really being impressed. I think it was Andy Kubert who did the illustrations. Just a really great imaginative uh, alternate, you know, uh, what, what DC would call an Elseworlds uh, with, the, with, the, with the Marvel characters. I, I think you guys are going to dig that, but that's just super uh crazy ironic coincidental that as i mentioned it, it then gets announced while i'm taking a breather in between so again you know part of that does not exist but for this conflict because because neil doing 1602 is is what fuels marvel's engagement in this lawsuit which also gets them in the end not only angela but miracle man i know i've put a period uh, at the end of this sentence a couple times i'm going to try and do an exclamation point this time i do have one question for you we, we just did this three-parter. In the past, I've done five-parters, three-parters, two-parters. Do you like the multi-part episodes? I, I just, uh, they, are, they, are, they are done out of necessity. The information is just too much to fit into one, sometimes two episodes. So f- sound off. Let me know if you like multi-part episodes, if that's what you are uh, digging. I'm going to tell you right now that you guys are digging this. Because again, uh, the, the the amount of listeners for these episodes is off the it's off the charts. So thank you again for showing up. And you know what? We have been number one, the number one comic book show, the number one comic book podcast for the last six days. October is just we are crushing it. Thank you so much. Uh, we we continue to be the top uh, comic book podcast, and that is because of you, the listeners. And the love that you're sharing and the way that you are just rallying behind the show. Thank you for making it worthwhile. I, I have really been able to, uh, to to interact with so many of you who did not know this story existed. Did not know this was a piece of comic book history. There's, there's other stuff I've shared with you from the 70s, the 80s, the 90s. This is, again, relatively recent. You know, some of this stuff happens in 2009 2010 so we are we are not that far away from when this finally got all wrapped up closed up there's some other stuff in this book I'm debating it could be a it could be a, an episode uh unto itself maybe maybe we'll get some pop, some 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 bonus bonus content cuz this started as bonus content maybe maybe it'll be content uh bonus bonus content and 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 we'll see about that. But yeah, sound off on on uh, on on. And if you like these these multiple part episodes, and I just again want to just thank you uh, for being a part of this. I have comic books coming out. Deadpool, Batter Blood number five arrives October eighteenth. It's the week of October eighteenth. The Deadpool Batter Blood huge passion project of mine. Continuing the what we started with Deadpool Bad Blood. Will have been all total, I believe, about 125, 130 pages of uh, a brand new Deadpool adventure when it's collected into trade paperback. But but uh, get, get the single issues. The conclusion: Spider-Man joins the fray. Wolverine, uh, Cable, Venom Pool. They're already there with Deadpool, battling a whole new group of villains. A whole new uh, kind of maniacal threat mission that they, that they are attempting to thwart. Please. Uh, w- w- 
come along with me as I land this plane and close this new chapter. Uh, Deadpool Batter Blood number one launched in June. We have been there June, July, August, September. We are going to wrap it up in October. Then in November, I have a really fun uh, 10-page story in Deadpool 7 Slaughters. Haven't really shared or talked about it yet, but but so we'll, we'll, we'll continue to hold hands and, and walk through those comic book corridors together uh, right up until November. I have an exciting project. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna call it the Last Blood. The Last Blood. If you say this back to me on uh, Twitter, I'll know you made it this far into the show. The Last Blood is coming, and and I and I hope you uh, you will uh, be intrigued and and excited. And that's all that I can say about the Last Blood at this time. But hey, as always, thanks for supporting my comic book work. You've been doing it for 38 years. You are the reason that I am able to uh, make comic books my living. I am always pushing, uh, trying to give you the best story, art, fun, layouts, design. It all matters in the end. Like Mike Zek of Secret Wars, Captain America, Master of Kung Fu fame told me in my first year in the business, the way that you lay out and design a page and move someone's eye through it is the reason when they close the page, when they close the comic, they say, I like this one. A lot, and, and in their mind, they liked it better than the others, and it's it's subliminal. It's not the first thing that they register, but it is the way that you move someone's eye through a page, and the ease with which you do it that separates your work from the rest. It was a very subliminal kind of uh, uh, you know artist to artist message and messaging, and I and I took to it, and it's 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 again something that I continue to attempt. Each and every time. Look, yes, I am selling you my work. Why wouldn't I? I love to promote comic books and I love to promote the comic books that I do. And I am so thrilled and so thankful that you have supported me all these many years. We can talk on social media. I am on Twitter or what they call X now. I, I, it'll always be Twitter to me. I am at Robert Liefeld, R-O-B-E-R-T-L-I-E-F-E-L-D. I have, the, I have that blue check. It signifies that I am... Uh, the genuine, real Rob Liefeld that you were speaking to. I love reading your comments, your messaging, all our back and forth. Thank you so much for uh, interacting with me over on Twitter. I'm, I've been showing off my daily Rob Tober. We have taken over October with a, uh, a different drawing each and every day, and I'm sharing those across my social media platforms, including Twitter at Robert Liefeld, and I show you my uh, my Rob Tober. Uh, contributions in Robtober. I'm drawing one Rob Liefeld creation a day, no matter where uh, that creation came from, whether it was uh, something that I sold to Marvel or something that I published myself. But be following Robtober. I'm doing a a character a day, and I look forward to sharing that with you over on Twitter at Robert Liefeld. You can always also see the stuff that I'm doing over on Instagram, where I'm at Rob Liefeld. Just at Rob Liefeld, another blue check signifying that I am the genuine article, that that is really me that you are interacting with. I am sharing my Rob Tober stuff over there. Also, visual, uh, it's a visual diary of mine, of my life, what I'm eating, the people I'm hanging out with, the drawings that I'm making, the work I'm doing. Uh, come along for the ride. I enjoy so much having you guys along. Thank you again. I read your comments. I read your messages, your DMs. The interaction over there is fantastic. Uh, at Rob Liefeld is my handle over on Instagram. I look forward to seeing you over there. We have a group over on Facebook. It's a group. It's called Rob Liefeld, Marvel, Extreme, and Beyond. We would invite you to jump on board. We continue. So many of the conversations that we have here on Rob's Observations are continued over there. 
in a longer form, more of a back and forth commentary. I would love to have you over at our group, Rob Liefeld, Marvel Extreme and Beyond. It is just continuing to grow. And uh, myself and a gentleman named Terry Sala, S-A-L-A, are the two guys who run, administrate, moderate uh, the group. We'll, we'll be the ones who click you through should you choose to hit the join group button and we we hope you do we we have art contests that terry runs we have all sorts of shares and interactions and conversations and it's such a fun place it's safe we make it cool we we don't have any fights that break out it is the most positive vibes we can possibly muster over on rob liefeld marvel extreme and beyond we hope to see you there over at our facebook group I will be in New York City. I will be in New York City for New York Comic Con. It is a fantastic show run by fantastic people. It is uh, really kind of the way to to send off the year. It, San Diego is like middle of the year, awesome, sunny California, and then New York is just the hustle and bustle of Manhattan and some of the greatest fans in the entire world assemble to celebrate comics. I always love seeing you. I will be there Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, signing once a day at my table. Follow my social uh, media to get uh, my, my exact times when I'm going to be there, but it's always going to be one once a day at the very least. I know I'm doing one CGC signing at their booth on Friday, so check those dates, but I'm going to be there. I, I am so excited that 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 show and that city give me so much energy. I'm so excited. Can't wait to see you there. We have all new comics and exclusives. There are VIP packs that I highly recommend and some reservations that you can secure over on my website, robliefeldcreations.com. That link is generally always in my Twitter and my Instagram bios as well. So follow that, follow those um, links in case you want to be part of the VIP packages, which come with exclusive comics and, and, and obviously front of the line access. Got to tell you that because people tell me that that is the number one reason that they get it. It is to save time so that they're, they don't wait in line and the lines are always a little longer in New York City. It is um, the greatest turnout of just comic book fandom. And and I look forward to seeing you there. Cannot wait to be there very soon. At the end of each and every episode, I just want to wish you the very best and wish you well. Uh, I, I continued, I, I think we're still crawling out of that incredible event that, that rocked our entire world and uh, found me sitting in front of this microphone talking to myself uh, for, for the last... <laughs> For the last three and a half years, uh, we are still kind of finding our footing, and uh, it's life's hard enough. Life is absolutely hard enough. You got uh, you know, all, all the craziness that we encounter in our in our lives each and every day. You're probably you're, you're raising families, you're dealing with friends, uh, maybe illness, health, uh, job stuff. Hey, I get it. You know, again, I got three kids. They're almost they are they are three adult children. I have three adult children. Uh, my wife and I have just had the best time in raising them. But hey, kids, it's it's not without uh, their hurdles, even when they are adults. And and uh, boy, just been there, experienced that, uh, have experienced loss of family members in the last couple of years. So I understand. I get it. I, I, I know what it's like. And some days it's like, oh my gosh, the, the burden of each and every day can just be crushing. But hey, do yourself a favor. Do your favor. Do yourself a favor, literally. I take this advice myself. Go find that great spot in the house that you love to relax on the couch, on the comforter, on the on the recliner, on the beanbag. Grab a comic book. I did it, I'm going to tell you right now, last night I grabbed some Defenders comics. They were actually Defenders 58, 59, 60, 61, 62 
uh, a period in 1978 that I totally dug the Defenders. I always wanted that book to be as great as the other team books that I was celebrating at the time. And I went back, and man, my mom, my memories rushed back. One of the copies is just curdled. I don't. I mean, it is the legit copy that I bought off the newsstand. It's ripped. It's torn. Uh, I love going back to the newsprint books. But and if you didn't think that I had a big old plate of nachos, not old. They were delicious. They were a plate of nachos right next to me, and I had, <laughs> I had a delicious soda. So you know, I, I was, I was, I was delighting the senses of my tongue and uh, and 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 the senses of of my mind, looking at those old comics and just getting the vibes and admiring the writing, the layout, the design, the inking. I was just going through all of it, trying to look at it through uh, 56-year-old eyes as opposed to 11-year-old eyes. But it distracted me. It completely took me to another place for a good solid hour, got off the uh, treadmill, wasn't drawing a comic at that time, not 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 attending to anything work related uh, no 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 responsibilities it was just me indulging on a weeknight just getting away setting my own terms for about an hour that I could reboot and that is my uh always my hope for you is that you are doing okay uh your mental your emotional your physical and your spiritual health are exactly where you need them to be we are rooting for you here at Observations boom fist bump i want to say a thank you i always forget a thank you to my incredible uh, engineer, producer, Reed. He crushes it for us on this show. And it's the reason the show sounds as good as it does. And the reason uh, I, I think that the show continues to approve. Thank you, Reed. Thank you for all you do. Thanks for putting the show together. Please come on back. We're going to find some more. <laughs> Great feuds to share with you, I promise. We are going to continue to dig into comic book events and history, and uh, maybe I'll have some great stories from from New York on down the line, but I will be here. So circle back, find me, I'll be waiting. We most certainly, absolutely, and all together now, inevitably, we'll talk again real soon.